Well, good evening. It is uh, a real joy to be here. Um, I wanted to say at the outset, um, most of you will be pretty much aware that it's not been the easiest uh, week, or indeed fortnight, uh, for the Hepburn family. And so I wanted to thank you uh, for the support that uh, we have received. I wanted to thank you uh, for the people who, who brought food, which has strengthened us, and all the people who have prayed uh, that has upheld us uh, over the last few days. And uh, we hope that it, it just gives uh, all the greater opportunity for us to be a witness to an unshakable, unmovable God, uh, no matter what comes our way. So I just wanted to thank you uh, uh, before I got started. Our reading tonight is from uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. <clears throat> and some uh, translations, it's even entitled, uh, Qualifications for Elders. Uh, I dare say we could probably come up with our own list, uh, maybe a long list or a short list, depending on who you are, but this is the list that we have here in Titus 1. So verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Amen. Well, last week we started a, a series on Titus, uh, specifically looking at leadership. Uh, but really, I was looking at the opening four verses, and in particular, the impact of the opening five words, Paul, a servant of God. As we saw, this is a phrase which is, of course, not just applicable to leaders. It's a, a phrase which is uh, to be applied to each and every one of us. Though perhaps uh, leaders are in the greatest danger of forgetting our servant status, perhaps being prone to delusions of grandeur. But all of us uh, could do with being reminded that we serve at the pleasure of the Most High. We serve the King of Kings and no one else. Now, I think crucially, as a corrective, it reminds us that we serve God and not the other way around. He is not there at our beck and call, but instead the one who made us, the one who sustains us, the one who died for us, the one who is our life, who gives us breath, the one who loves us, the one who is just incomparably wondrous, he leads and we follow. That he appoints and we serve, and as we do so, we discover what a joy it is as he molds us into his likeness. So if you weren't here last week, that was essentially what we're on about. But with that in mind, we then turn to verse 5 here, uh, which tells us that Titus had been left on Crete so that he would put the churches in order, specifically that he would appoint some elders. And elders, I mean, whether you're looking at the Greek or the English, that word of elders, uh, it gives that sense of uh, maturity, that sense of having been in the faith for a while. And so these elders, uh, these Christians, are to help the church grow in the godliness that they themselves are supposed to exhibit. 
and you can probably see where I'm going with this, <laughs> that's not just applicable to leaders. <laughs> that's not just applicable to elders. This is to be applicable to every single one of us. We are supposed to really strive for maturity. We're supposed to spend our time with God and have him change us and shape us and mold us so we reflect his image in the life that we lead. And as we do so, we find us supporting the people around us. In the image of God, we look around us, we see the people who are struggling, we see the people around us, the other Christians whose faith may be beset by a storm, and we reach out and we show them, not out of our own greatness, not out of our own strength, and not because we imagine ourselves to be the finished article, simply because God has had slightly more time to be working on us, to be chipping away at the edges. And so there should be that reflection of Christ all the more. So all of us should be like that, to a greater or lesser degree. This means that, though I'm looking at this text, thinking of leaders, thinking of elders, this whole text is applicable to every one of us here tonight. It, it means that we don't get to sit there looking at our list and judging the elders, and maybe having a sly glance over and wondering, well, oh, you know, okay, he's not a drunkard, don't tick. You know, that, that's not the point of this text. The point is that maturity in godliness that is described earlier. It means that each of us need to be looking at this list and recognizing it's not just about a list. Because it's quite a short one, it's quite a brief one. It actually has a bar that's quite low. It's not just about the list, it's about that maturity to godliness. And that's why when we look at verses 6 to 8... When we look at this uh, list of character traits, these behaviors, that provide a a, a basis for the kind of person that should have responsibility, uh, we do see here that it is more than just a list. Verse 6 and 7 here uh, provide some largely negative examples. Verse 8 provides a more positive contrast. And it all flows from the idea that these behaviors, these actions that we read here flow from the importance of that leader's reputation. Uh, described here as uh, being uh, above reproach, or in, in some translations, as being blameless, th- that is the key to this part of the text. You see, the list of behaviors that follow, uh, they follow this call for the elder to be above reproach. These are examples of behaviors that would be incompatible with the blameless life. And let me remind you, it's not an exhaustive list. It, it doesn't have to be. It shouldn't have to be the exhaustive list. It's not as if, well, he does these things, so anything else is okay. <laughs> I mean, we know that when we're looking at the text. The idea is that the person should have an unblemished reputation, and these are the sorts of things that are incompatible with that life. I mean, when we read that list, I did see none of us thought that we'd want to be led by someone like that such a a base manner for their behavior. But the point is is, is broader. The point is that the reputation of the man will affect the reputation of the church, and the reputation of the church will affect the reputation of Jesus Christ in this place. It worries me that increasingly, as the Bible is less and less read and less and less known, for an awful lot of people in Aberdeen, the only gospel they're ever going to come into contact with is what is displayed in your life. And so the reputation of Jesus Christ is at stake. And that applies to all of us. 
It is in the transformed life. It is in in the life that has been touched by God and changed by God that we become an undeniable witness to the reality of the saving power of Christ. We go out at a contrast to the world. Undeniably his. And, And that is the point. And that's why this sort of uh, chaotic life in verses 6 and 7 is incompatible to someone who would help guide the people of God. It is in the contrast to the, the upright, self-controlled, disciplined life we read about in verse 8. This life of chaos described here is in contrast to the God we serve. Uh, from the opening chapters of, of Genesis, we see a God of order, uh, a God who can take chaos and create something wonderful out of it. He creates the world until it is just so perfect. Um, He takes the sea, really, and all over the place, and out comes the land. Uh, It's amazing. For the the Hebrew people, um, the sea was was always a metaphor for for something that was uncontrollable, something that was uh, a good symbol for chaos. Because uh, you never knew what was going to happen next with the sea. Uh, famously, they were pretty bad sailors. I mean, it's not just Jonah you have to look to. Uh, but there's a, there's, they have a navy at one point under Solomon, and it sank. And so they, they had this metaphor that where every time they looked at the sea, it was a wonderful symbol of chaos. Uh, incidentally, uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6 says that God's throne is surrounded by a glassy sea. Yeah? Um, if we don't get what's going on there, we might just think that that's pretty, or we might think it's a bit wet. Um, I don't know if, it, if it's a real sea or not. The point is that even the sea, before the sovereign God, has to be still. He's so sovereign, even the sea is calm. The point is that he is not a God of chaos. And so the people of God need to have lives that show that sort of level of control. Now, I'm not saying that we have complete control over everything that ever happens in our lives. There will be storms that come, and when they come, we don't often see them coming. We have very little control over them. I'll hold up my hand now and say with some feeling that sometimes our lives can be beset by storms that overwhelm us. The point is not that we control every event every unforeseen circumstance. Rather, the, the point is, who are we when those storms come? I'm not deluded enough to imagine that I sit on a throne, that I have some sort of glassy sea around me, but I will not be tossed by the waves. Now, I refuse to despair in the moments where I feel overwhelmed. And it's not because of my strength, which runs out all too quickly not because I am able to withstand the storms. It is because I have built my life on an immovable rock. It is because I have discovered that in the midst of it all, that the one who made the foundations of the earth, the one that put the stars into the sky, is capable of holding me in his hand. On occasion it feels like I'm clinging on by my fingernails. But that rock does not move, no matter what comes to buffet it. Now, I could give many examples of that in my life if I chose to. I dare say that many of you tonight can testify to this fact. 
We do not have control over what happens to us, but we can have assurance and we can see that in each and every storm there is an opportunity to meet with God. Sometimes the more painful the storm, the more we allow ourselves to be changed by God. And that's what this means. That each of us needs to be transformed by God. It means that when we read a list like this, we've got to recognize that we need to go beyond a short list. I mean, we look at this, if we see some sort of checklist and we tick them off, we allow ourselves to have this sort of self-satisfied aura about us. I've done that, I've done that, I've done that, I'm good before God. We think too small when we think like that. I think I should be satisfied just because I'm not a drunk. Uh, I'm not violent. Is that enough? I don't think so. That's why it's important that we see this blameless life. We've got to see that what God is intent on doing goes far beyond a small checklist of just simply examples. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, most human beings are, are, we are prone to a bit of legalism. We do love a few rules and regulations, especially if we're the ones that made them up. You know, when we get to make up our own rules, we say, well, here's the rules of what makes a good Christian, and then we get to apply them to everybody. You know? It's like when you play a game, but you've made up all the rules. And somehow you manage to win, and everyone else feels miserable. One of the worst things about having a checklist of, of things that we think is enough, is that it acts as a barrier to the gospel. You know, we think, well, this is what a proper Christian looks like, and so if you don't measure up, it won't have anything to do with you. Or worse, you know, the, the, the world, people who do not know Christ, are excluded because our list is so particular. It's too small, though. It's, it's too external. That's too much about pleasing other people rather than being an example of the outworking of the power of God, that change that he brings, that, that wonderful transformation he brings on the inside. That's blameless life. So I was trying to work out how to illustrate this best. <laughs> I was thinking, how, how do I try and illustrate this idea of, of the fact that, yes, we are prone to checklists, and when we read something like Titus, we just, we just make a list of things, and if they tick those boxes, everything is fine. And yet God is so much bigger than this, that these are just mere examples of the blameless life, because he has transformed us utterly from the inside. I thought, how, how do I go about trying to articulate this? And I thought, yes, <laughs> eventually. I thought, got it. You see, the problem is it's not just Titus. There's whole sections of the Bible, there's whole swathes of Scripture that we go to with that small mind. And we see a list of things, a list of do's and don'ts, that if we just simply tick enough boxes, then I'm all right before God. And so I thought, right, I'll take you to Leviticus. <laughs> um, quite often this will happen, I'm afraid, you know. I mean, <laughs> once, once I'm up here, I'm like, right, okay, it's Titus, but we're really going to go to Leviticus. Um, but I, it's an, I feel that Leviticus is a good example of this because it's another text that is full of lists. And we look at these lists and we, we think that they're checklists of things to either do or worse, things to just simply ignore because that's back then doesn't apply to me. Let me give you an example. Uh, I'm going to take it from uh, Leviticus 21, verse 5. Um, I could have taken it from Leviticus 19:27 because it says the exact same thing. But um, here we go, Leviticus 21, verse 5. I want you to listen very carefully to this text. 
Because there's a, there's a reaction that, that we have to it, which is very telling. So verse 5 in chapter 21 of Leviticus. And it says this. <clears throat> they shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards. It'll go on, but I think we might need to take a pause here. I think... Before we get on to really talk about the source, we need to deal with the elephant in the room, pretty much. Uh, which is, when you look at that verse and then you look at me, you will realize pretty quickly that I am the perfect example of what not to look like. Uh, now, I, I'll be honest, there are plenty of people who look at me and think, well, it's not a good look. But the fact is, this is in Scripture. This is in our Bible. And it's not enough to simply think of it as a list. It's not simply enough to think, well, actually, Ian, let, let's, do, let's, let's go for the fuller look. Let's, let's have a little bit more hair there. That's not enough. We've completely failed to grasp what this verse is all about if we think it is just about a beard. If we make God small. <coughs> God, in both the Old and New Testament, is not overly concerned with the external things. It is with the heart of man that he is intent on changing. And I'm not saying that some of these verses aren't difficult to understand. Some of them are. Uh, and most of you may well be sitting there thinking, well, surely this verse doesn't apply to me today. I mean, maybe particularly the ladies uh, here tonight I might be looking at that verse and thinking, surely that verse doesn't apply to me today. And what we do is we throw away a bit of our Bible. Maybe we think, oh, well, that's to do with the law, and I'm not too sure what to do with that. So we'll just, we'll just pretend it's not there. It is surprising, then, when I say that this verse applies to each and every one of us. Every single one of us, this verse applies. In actual fact, this verse applies uh, a challenge to each and every one of us that very often we miss when we've turned it into just simply a list of do's and don'ts. Yeah, to better understand what I'm talking about and why this beard was a problem, we look at the context. That's nearly always the answer, to be fair. We look slightly wider. You see, the foundation to chapter 19, which starts off this whole passage all the way through 19, 20, 21, verse 2, the people are told, you are to be holy because I am holy. You are to follow the rules. Why? Because it says, because... I am the Lord. Uh, more accurately, he says, I am Yahweh, the personal name of God. He, he doesn't just demand it because he's the Lord and he's in charge and so you're going to do it. He's saying, you have to do these things because of who I am. He's not just simply demanding certain behaviors. He's saying, this is because of who I am that you're going to have to live a certain way because you are to be like me. You are to be holy like me. You are to act in a way that reflects me. And in case we forget, the, the, the chapters are interspersed with because I am the Lord, in case we forget, or I am Yahweh. And so in chapter 19, it goes on to talk about idolatry, uh, how the people of God should reject witchcraft. Chapter 20 talks about the, the worship of Moloch and concludes that it's an anathema to have anything to do with uh, witches and those in leagues with spirits. 
And it goes on and on to demand that the people be holy, that the people be separate, that people be different from those around them. The Levitical text will tell them how to eat, how to wash, how to sew, how to dress. All in an attempt to declare that God is different. Uh, importantly for our specific command on the beard, just so you know, uh, we realize now that, that this look, the, the, the shaved sides and the bald head, as it were, uh, was a look of a particular group of idolaters, uh, the, the, the Moloch worshippers. And, and Moloch uh, was a particularly odious and, and, and evil uh, uh, idol that the people would serve because they would murder their own children to try and placate this vain thing. And God is so intent on being different. God is so intent on saying, do not even look like them. Because I am nothing like him. I don't want my people going out there and just blending into the background. I don't want my people just to go out there and be satisfied with a few little things. You're not chameleons. You're supposed to go out there and be different because when people see you, they're supposed to see me. So don't eat like them. Don't look like them. Don't act like them. Because you are not them. Because I am the Lord. Incredibly powerful text. <laughs> the New Testament says the same thing. Um, as the people of God living in the world, in a world that needs to know him, we are to strive to be different. Not just odd. I can do that in my own strength. But God different. What does it say in Romans 12, verse 2? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed. Be changed. Be different. Do you see why this goes far beyond the list? Do you see why this whole kind of external uh, you know, ticking boxes is not enough? Do you see why we can't have God, the small, petty God in charge of the small things? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, who would transform us utterly and then go out with us, ready to turn the world upside down. The blameless life. That's why it matters. A transformed life, well, that gains a reputation. It's a, rep a reputation that threatens the world because though we are ordinary people, we serve an extraordinary God. And though we are uh, not the finished article, though we go out uh, very often failing, very often not living up to what we're supposed to be, over the peace, there should be the evidence of us changing. There should be the evidence of, of us being transformed by God. And as these things are happening in our lives, People notice. That's why it matters. And that's why it can't just apply to the leaders. <laughs> it applies to all of us. This is why it matters. This is why we cannot live our lives looking at the checklist and thinking that's enough. When we live clearly Christ-centered lives, well, we wage war an aggressive war on the kingdom all around us. Now, that's been in my mind uh, this week. Um, I was speaking at the, the RGUCU, and this was largely the theme that I picked up on. And it's been on my mind all week because I feel 
not just for them. It's <laughs> for all of us. We are to wage an aggressive war on the world by having transformed lives. When we live clearly Christ-centered lives, we are waging war. You see, the kingdom that most of the people around us are living in, most of the people around us actually love, I mean, bear in mind what it is that I'm saying. Bear in mind what it was that Leviticus was saying and that Titus is saying. By living the Christian life, we serve somebody. Somebody who has a claim on our life, somebody who has the right to comment on our life, has the right to say, your life needs to change. He has the right to say why we are here. He has the right to your lips and what they say. He has the right to your hands and what they do. He has the right to your feet and where you go. He has the right to say that you don't live for yourself. You live for God. He has the right to say that you cannot save yourself. Your good works, your checklists are not enough to balance things out. He has the right to tell you, you need to be saved. You need to be saved because you're a sinner. Not because you don't meet up to the checklists, but because at your core that is what you are. And you are utterly trapped and need to be set free in the power of God, a power that can transform you and change you. When we go into the culture of today and we believe in someone who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You challenge every presupposition and every value that is cherished by most people in Aberdeen today. not enough to have a list. It's not enough to go out there and say, well, I'm a good person because I did these things. It's not enough. But to go out transformed, to go out different, to go out to challenge people because they think they have the rule of their own life. When we look at our list in Titus, we think of the blameless life. We think of what that means. We think of a life that is actually based and founded on the word of God. That reveals God to us. What a wonderful thing it is. What a wonderful hope we have that we might be transformed. I'll be entirely honest. If I had a list and that's all I had to do, I'd still fail. <laughs> I wouldn't keep the list. I mean, most of the Old Testament, and look at the law and look at it, most of it's not that hard to keep. The problem is, in here, most of the people didn't want to keep it. But to be transformed, to be different, to be a challenge to the world because we have lives that reflect Him. So we sit here tonight with, um, with a choice. Uh, you can be content with your checklist. You can be satisfied with the God of the small things. <laughs> or we can seek the God who transforms lives, who is intent on having a people that reflect him, who is intent on establishing a reputation here for people who are different. God different. A people who will reject mediocrity, who will laugh at being normal, uh, who won't be able to blend in. And people not satisfied with checklists or the, 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 the small things, but to desire Him, 
to settle only for him, to be compelled to run into his presence and be transformed. <clears throat> there are a few illustrations that I use which, which are my favorites. You know, if I get to speak long enough, you'll probably hear them every now and again. I'll try and space them out at regular intervals if possible. But here's one of them. Okay. So some of you may have heard this one before, but it bears repeating just now. Um, and I wanted to, to tell you about a, a really bizarre thing called a kushki. For those of you who were sleeping, you suddenly perked up. Right, a kushki. Now, most of you have probably not heard of this thing, and good for you. A kushki is, is well, it's, it's a terrible thing. Did you know that there's an entire industry dedicated to preying on sleep-deprived parents? Uh, you know, parents who, who've had maybe a newborn, and some of you know what I'm talking about, uh, uh, those of you who probably just woke up. Uh, you know, the, the kind of the newborn child, you know, and you, you will do anything for this child to sleep. You know, and you go day after day after day of this child not sleeping. Now, my eldest, Isaac, he's, he's obviously nine now. He, he's a good sleeper now, but when he was small, didn't sleep so well. And so we were desperate for this child to sleep. And of course, this industry kicks in. And one of the things there was a kushki, which is a fabric thing that the child would sleep with. It looked relatively harmless. And as the adult, you're supposed to take this thing and you're supposed to wear it on your person for a few days so that it ends up with your scent on it. You then put this thing in the, the crib. You put the child in. And because he can smell you, the child settles down and goes to sleep. Well, the problem is my child's not an idiot. <laughs> you know, I, I put him in there. He can smell me, but that's just infuriated him all the more. You know, he, he's really angry now. It's like, I can smell you, but where are you? And he would go berserk with this stupid thing in there. He was not going to be satisfied with the smell of his father. He had to be picked up. He had to have his head on my chest. He had to hear my heart beating. He had to have my breath on the top of his wee head before he would settle down. And yet for us, all too often we would settle for something less than God himself. We would settle for a smell of God. A few songs. Uh, sitting comfortably, uh, maybe, maybe going to church, and the things of God around the periphery. But we don't make a fuss if we don't have God himself. This whole message, this whole idea of, of not being satisfied with the checklist, but wanting the blameless life, uh, of, of looking at Leviticus and seeing that it's because we're supposed to be like him, and knowing that we can't be like him, unless he does it. Well, then we cannot be satisfied with anything less than God himself. We should scream and rail and throw a tantrum. If all we have is the smell of God in our life, we need God himself. We need the breath of God in our lives to transform us and make us different. And we should not settle until we have his arm, his breath, his beating heart. And we know we're in the right place. That's the difference. That's the choice. There are plenty of people who will quite happily be around the periphery. That's not what we're called to be or called to do. 
And the wonderful thing is, the wonderful great hope of it is, I don't have to transform myself. All I've got to do is cry out for him. Let him lead me the way I'm supposed to go. That is what it means when we look at our checklist. That is what it means by being transformed, by being changed. And that is why we, we have the hope of being a real threat to the world that doesn't know God. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that the transformation that we read about, the transformation we might think about, is not done in our own strength or our own might or our own will. We thank you, Lord, that all we've got to do is cling on to you and hold on to you and cry out to you to be changed. We pray, Lord, that this church would indeed be a threat to the world around us, that this church would indeed have a reputation for being God different because the people in that church are being changed by you, are not satisfied to anything less than having you at the center of their lives. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to sit on the throne or to to calm the glassy sea, Lord, as it were. We don't have to do any of that. We just simply need to praise you and come and serve you who sits on that throne. And so, as the sovereign Lord, we pray, O Lord, that you would enable us to get through the storms, but in every storm, show a life that is in control, show a life that is different from those around us because of the wonderful, powering change, that wonderful change in the power of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would look on us and in your mercy, change us. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.